This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books and Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Carrie Figdor, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese. In our bi-monthly podcasts, we'll be discussing with philosophers their new ideas as expressed in their newly published books. Today's inaugural podcast features Professor Eric Schwitzgabel of the University of California at Riverside. Professor Schwitzgabel's new book is Perplexities of Consciousness from the MIT Press. The perplexities he considers begin with asking simple questions. For example, do we dream in color or in black and white? Or when you look at a penny from an angle, does it look round or elliptical? Eric argues for skepticism regarding the reliability of our reports about the contents of our conscious perceptual experiences. We're accustomed to doubting our abilities to assess our personality traits, our motivations, our implicit beliefs and desires, and so on. But as Eric puts it, quote, it's one thing not to know why you chose a particular pair of socks, and quite another to be unable accurately to determine your currently ongoing visual experience as you look at those socks, your auditory experience as an interviewer poses a question, or the experience of pain in your back that is making you want to sit down, unquote. So without further ado, let our interview begin. So I'm with Eric Schwitzgabel from University of California, Riverside. Eric, are you there? I'm here. Hi, welcome to New Books and Philosophy. Thanks for having me, Carrie. Yeah, well, thank you for taking the time to talk with us about perplexities of consciousness. Um, I'm a little worried about your skepticism, about your ability to determine <laughs> your auditory experience as an interviewer poses a question, but let me just hope for the best, and I'll begin by asking you to tell us a little bit about your background um, and your interest in the sorts of questions you examine in this book. So uh, I got my PhD from UC Berkeley in 1997, and uh, most of my work at that time was on, or my dissertation was on, Connections Between Developmental Psychology and Philosophy of Science and Philosophy of Mind. And I got interested in the question of how well children know their own minds. And I was very influenced by Alison Gopnik and John Flavel, uh, who were at Berkeley and Stanford, who thought that children had very poor knowledge of their own stream of experience and their own beliefs and desires, uh, and generally uh, had very poor theories of mind. Um, so one of the things that I got interested in as a result of that was the extent to which adults have substantially better knowledge of their stream of experience. Uh, I guess that's, that was kind of what launched me into this. There's kind of a, a suspicion that in the philosophical tradition, there's a stemming from Descartes, especially there's this optimism about our knowledge of our stream of experience, especially right in the 20th century, we came to be rather doubtful about our knowledge of things like our motives, our unconscious desires, the, the causes of our behavior and that sort of thing. But one of the things that philosophers seem to still be optimistic about and that psychologists, for the most part, haven't really systematically studied recently has been our knowledge of our own current stream of experience, you know, red here now, or that I'm feeling pain, or that I'm having an image with a certain content. Those kinds of things, I thought, had not been looked at very well, and I thought maybe children weren't so good at that. 
what what did the yeah. children do or not do? <laughs> well, John Flavel has this wonderful series of studies where he is trying to get children to just describe the contents of their thoughts. So, for example, one of the one of the things that he does is he has he he puts a bell under a desk and then he says, "I'm going to ring the bell." And then he waits, I think, 5 seconds and then rings the bell, right? And then he says, "I'm going to do it again." He waits 5 seconds and then he rings the bell again. And then he says, I'm going to do it again, right? And the children apparently, you know, they're paying close attention. They think this is a weird behavior by the adult, I suppose, right? And then he waits 10 seconds, right? I'm not sure about the exact times, but, and then he says, are you thinking about anything? Is there anything going on in your mind? (laughs) And the children will often say no. He asks them if they're thinking about a bell. I think the majority of children say, no, I wasn't thinking about a bell. And there's a whole series of experiments like this where he's trying to get at children's knowledge of what, we think would be fairly, if their cognition is at all like ours, we would think might be fairly obvious thoughts they must be having, and they seem to not have very good knowledge of that, or of other people's thoughts, right? So another one, he has an example of, he has a confederate who's looking at a pear that is inside a glass bottle, right? And, you know, I think she's kind of looking at it going, hmm, (laughs) you know, puzzled, right? He asks the child, well, does... Is she thinking about anything? What she, might she be thinking about? And they're completely uh, poor at answering this type of question. <laughs> Both for themselves and, and for others, they, we're talking about four or five-year-old children. They seem to have pretty poor knowledge of their stream of experience. And that, right, maybe it completely changes radically. And we're just absolutely perfect or incredibly good about our own experience when we're adults. But I guess... I wasn't so sure of that, and I didn't think it had been studied very carefully, um, either in psychology or in philosophy. Um, so I started getting interested in that. And one of the things that led me into this, one of the first things I started thinking about, was our um, our knowledge of our dreams. Well, let me let me ask something about dreams because um, yeah. Well, you you go through a number of cases. Uh, one is the case of uh, dreaming, uh, which we'll yeah. return to. You know, whether we dream in color or black and white. Right, right. Um, another is, um, you know, how we see, you know, objects from, you know, what we might call non-canonical viewpoints, you know, such as seeing a coin <laughs> from sideways rather than straight on. Yep. Um, and then what we know when we're imagining, right, when we're engaging in mental imagery. Um, right. And, and then there was a final case, I thought, interesting uh, discussion of uh, Edward Titchener's attempt to develop um, trained introspectors um, right. and, you know, as the basis of, as a sort of objective basis, I guess, for um, introspective psychology. Um, but let me, to start with the dreaming case, um, one of the things that occurred to me was, um, since this was the, you know, initial chapter, was, you know, since dreaming is not what we might consider, you know, m- many people might not consider a, a conscious perceptual experience, um, why you begin the book talking about dreaming? Um, well, it's a fun case that gets people's attention that people tend to have opinions about. And it's one of the first ones I had been thinking of. Um, but, uh, but, and I think it fits because it really is about um, conscious experience or phenomenology in the sense that those terms are generally used in contemporary philosophy of mind, right? So, you know, in ordinary parlance, we'll sometimes say that someone who's asleep is not conscious. But if consciousness is um, having, as I think most philosophers mean it, something like having a stream of experience, having something it's like to be you, having things like... Uh, imageries and perceptions uh, that are uh, experienced, then I think we probably do have those while we're dreaming. I mean, I think the ordinary conception of dreaming is that involves something like sensory or quasi-sensory experiences or imagery experiences or something like that, emotional experiences. Right? So to the extent or to the extent it has that kind of stuff in it, then it would be an example of consciousness or phenomenology in the in the sense that I intend it, and I think is the mainstream sense in contemporary analytic philosophy of mind. Okay, and, and one other sort of clarificatory um, th- 
thing. So when you say, you know, experience or conscious experience or phenomenology, um, would you say, for example, that, um, I mean, pain is a typical example of, you know, the feeling of pain is a typical experience that we mean when we're talking about uh, perceptual experience or phenomenological experience. And I was just wondering... Is there a difference between, say, if I feel a throbbing pain in my left knee and mm-hmm. I feel a very similar or the same throbbing pain in my right knee or in my elbow? Um, yeah. Are, are these, do these, do, are these phenomenologically the same, but their content is different? Or is there no sort of difference between the content of experience and the phenomenology of experience. Yeah. The relationship between what um, philosophers sometimes call the content uh, of say sensory experience and maybe pain is a kind of sensory experience. Some people call it nociception. Um, the diff- the, some philosophers distinct, uh, distinguish between the content of the experience and the phenomenology of the experience. And then it's an interesting question to what extent those pull apart. Now, in the case of something like pain in the right knee versus the left knee, I think that in a normal case, although you know I wouldn't necessarily take this 100% for granted, there would be at least a difference in experienced egocentric location, right? So the knee, the, the pain in the left knee might be felt as though in a location more to your left side, <laughs> right, than the pain in the right knee. Now, I don't know. I mean, sometimes we have illusions about the positions of our body, and some people even report having pain experiences that aren't even enclosed in their egocentrically experienced body, right? So I have a pain, you know, two feet to my left, to the left of my shoulder out there in space somewhere. Right? So there's weird stuff that people report. Right? But, um, but let's say that we think about... But So in that kind of case, I suspect there would be at least that spatial difference used generally in the experience of it. Um, but there might be other cases where it seems like there's a difference in content and no difference in phenomenology at all. So let's say that there, there's a golf ball that you're looking at, right? And you don't know this, but this golf ball was hit by Tiger Woods, right? You have no idea about this to you. It just looks like an ordinary golf ball, right? And imagine exactly the same situation, except it's a golf ball that was never hit by Tiger Woods, right? In one case, you're looking at a golf ball that was hit by Tiger Woods, and in another case, you're not. So there's a difference in the content of the perception in some sense, right? What you're looking at is different. Um, but there, you might, if you don't know anything about that difference, the phenomenology in the two cases might be the same. So that would be one kind of case where you, where the phenomenology and the content uh, of a visual experience might come apart. Okay. And my focus really is on the phenomenology, the felt, what its likeness, uh, the we think of as the stream of experience okay so dreaming right do we dream in color or do we dream in black and white i mean what's your skepticism (laughs) about our ability to give a a good answer yeah well one of the things that when, when i started thinking about whether adults really are so much better than children at this kind of thing and i think we are better um was my memory from when I was growing up in the 70s. People used to ask, oh, do you dream in color or black and white? And it was thought to be kind of an interesting question. Um, And people don't ask that anymore. And so I was just curious whether there was a big difference uh, in how people thought of coloration in their dreams in between now and the middle of the 20th century. And so I went and looked at... Uh, popular magazines and uh, literature in psychology and in philosophy on the coloration of dreaming. And what I found was that in the 50s and the 40s, in the United States, the majority of Americans said they dreamed exclusively or almost exclusively in black and white. Um, and now, and I, now people don't say that at all, really, or very uh, a small minority say that. Almost everyone says or assumes that we dream in color now. Um, in fact, I took a questionnaire from 1942 that had a set of results. You know that almost everybody said that uh, they dreamed at most occasionally in 
black and white. And then I gave that same survey to people in 2003 in the uh, uh, in Southern California, and pretty much uh, the the overwhelming majority said they dream uh, primarily in color. So there, uh, so there is seems to have been a change in opinion about uh, whether we dream in black and white or in color. I also looked historically before the 20th century at uh, psychologists and philosophers, um, and I did not find, um, I found almost no evidence, uh, except for a couple uh, early psychologists, of people being skeptical about the existence of coloration in dreams before the 20th century. So there's this this arc of opinion in uh, the modern West from kind of assuming, basically, that we dream in color and analogizing dreams to colored media, like tapestries and paintings, to, in the 20th century, thinking that we dream primarily in black and white in the middle of the 20th century, and analogizing dreams to black and white films. Um, And then, uh, by the end of the 20th century, people uh, returning to thinking that they dream in color. Could could it be that um, the dreams actually did change? Well, that certainly is a possibility, although I think it's unlikely. One reason that I think it's unlikely is that if you look at uh, the text of dream reports, uh, just things that people write down about the contents of their dreams after they wake up, um, and you do a color term analysis, you just look for the occurrence of words like brown and orange and blue and red, uh, the rate of color term use is virtually identical. Um, between samples from the 1940s and 1950s and samples from the early uh, from the 1990s and early 21st century. So that's at least uh, one reason to think that the rate the coloration of dreams didn't radically change. Um, if it did, you'd think it would show up, I guess in <laughs> in the color terms. Um, so what what other hypotheses? do you think might explain the difference? Well, my guess is that what happened was that people don't really know their dream experience very well, and so they tend to analogize it to media. So, as I said before, the 20th century, people analogized dreams to things like tapestries and paintings. And then, with the advent of film media, it seemed very natural for people to analogize dreams to film media. So that's what dreaming is like. Um, And film media were black and white, uh, predominantly at the time. And so people came to uh, misattribute that feature of film media to their dreams. Um, So I I guess I think it's like we don't really know very well what's going on in our dream experience. But there are these things in the outside world that seem like natural comparison points. And so we latch onto those to describe what our experience is. But the risk of latching onto those is that we start to attribute to our experiences features that belong to those points of analogy, that is the film media, that don't actually belong to the target uh, thing, the, the experience itself that you're trying to describe by means of the analogy. So that's, that's my inclination uh, to... Uh, Okay. And we see, you, yeah. we can see the same thing in, in China. I did a follow-up study with um, uh, Chang Bing Huang and uh, Yifeng Zhou in China where we looked at uh, low socioeconomic status uh, China, rural Chinese in the mid, middle of the first decade of the 21st century, looked at intermediate status urban Chinese and high status urban Chinese, and uh, and they had very different rates of black and white versus color media exposure. And the, 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 lower, the lower socioeconomic status Chinese who had high rates of black and white exposure and low rates of color exposure reported mostly black and white dreaming. And the high SES uh, urban Chinese who had mostly color exposure reported high rates of color dreaming and the intermediate group was in between, right? So there was another kind of confirmation of this relationship between media exposure and self-report of dreaming coloration. How about um, how the how about the case of the coins, right, or or any actually any object from some 
you know, odd viewpoints as opposed to straight on. Right. So this is, um, yeah, in chapter two of my book, uh, this is what I look at. It's a similar kind of case where I think what's going on is over-analogizing to media. So the kind of classic case that's been discussed by a lot of philosophers of perception is whether a penny viewed at an oblique angle looks elliptical. All right, so just take a penny and look at it, not straight square on, but, you know, tilted. And does it, in some sense, look elliptical? Now, most people will say that there's a sense in which it still looks round, although some people will deny that. Um, a lot of people will say, well, in addition to it's in some sense looking round, it all, there's also a sense in which it looks elliptical. Right? So uh, among contemporary philosophers, both Michael Tai and Alvin Noy have, have said this kind of thing. Uh, but it goes back, uh, I think, at least to Malbranche. Um, the idea... Right. And I think a lot of people who have interviewed um, informally about this seem comfortable with the idea that, that the tilted penny, in some sense, looks elliptical. Now, I'm not sure whether it looks elliptical. When I kind of look at the tilted penny myself, I'm, I'm not much inclined to say that it looks elliptical, um, although I can warm myself to that <laughs> idea sometimes. But what I... What I think might be going on is that people are over-analogizing visual experience to flat projective media like paintings and photographs right so uh, a tilted coin in a picture makes an oblique uh, uh, an elliptical shape on the surface of the print right right same with a painting of a, a tilted coin. All right, so if you think that your visual experience is kind of like a painting or like a photograph, then it seems very natural to think, ah, well, the tilted coin looks elliptical. But there are, and, you know, and that could be right. I'm not 100% convinced that's wrong, but there, there are a couple reasons that I'm, I'm, I'm suspicious. Uh, one is that... I think the geometry, the implied geometry of this view has problems when you try to generalize it. And the other is that I, there seems to be at least some cultural contingency to these sorts of reports. Um, so if you look at cultures like ancient Greece and like the introspective psychologists circa 1900 in Western Europe and the United States... You tend not to see these claims uh, about tilted pennies looking elliptical and similar kinds of uh, what I call projective distortions, right? The idea, the kinds of geom geometrical deformations that you would get by projecting uh, the visual scene onto a flat surface. So they say things like, what would it look like or what does it look like? And they say, it looks round. Right. <laughs> they don't, I mean... So one interesting case of this, uh, perhaps the most telling case of this, is Sextus Empiricus. Uh, he's an ancient Greek skeptic, and he he built his career, uh, his skeptical career, to a substantial extent, on the idea that things present different appearances under different conditions. Right. So he says, "Well, look, you know, when you've uh, what seems in motion versus what seems stable depends on whether you're on the ship or the shore." You know, if you glance at the sun and then look somewhere else, things look different than if you haven't glanced at the sun. Um, if your hand has been in cold water and then you put it in warm water, the water feels warmer than if your hand hadn't been in cold water before. And he's just got this, he's got long lists of ways in which things seem different from different perspectives or in different conditions. But nowhere in these lists... Does he say, oh, yeah, and, you know, does he give what seem to us now to be really obvious kinds of cases if we accept this this distortive kind of uh, projective distortion view, right? Nor does he say, oh, yeah, and a tilted penny looks, uh, you know, and a penny looks elliptical if seen from an angle, but seem, looks circular if seen square on, which is exactly the kind of thing that Sextus would have said had he thought of it. I mean, it would be, it's almost unimaginable that Sexus would leave that kind of thing off his list if he'd thought of that. 
Um, he's got these long lists. So it's perfect for his point, and yet he never says it. And he does, an, and he analogizes visual experience not to flat projective media like paintings, but rather to the impression of a signet on wax, which was uh, which is an analogy that goes back at least to Aristotle. And the 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 difference here is that a signet is a mark, right? It used to sign that we used to sign to prove, say that. You know, a sealed envelope was was sealed by you, right? You've got a, a special figure that you press into the wax to indicate that it, that's your signature, basically, on that wax, right? And if the signet is correctly applied, then the entire face of the signet goes onto the wax. There's no kind of projective distortion about it, right? Right. So, so if you so if you look at Aristotle and Epicurus and Sextus. These kinds of these guys use the signet analogy for perception, and they also don't attribute projective distortion to experience. And so, for uh, Sextus is, is I mean, sorry, um, Epicurus is a nice case of this, right? So he thinks that the image, the the way you see is that the is that uh, miniature copies of the object are always being fused by that object and then travel through space into your eye, right? And as they travel through space, the edges will get worn off. <laughs> and that's why you get certain kinds of distortions. But the, the, these objects themselves are three-dimensional and have that same three-dimensional figure as the, the object that it's effused from. Um, so he does not attribute projective distortions. Um, so that's so that's the ancient Greek case, and if you look at cases where ancient Greek um, and actually uh, in ancient Rome too, where they attribute uh, distortions to experience, they don't follow the pattern at all of um, attributing the types of distortions that you would expect were visual experience flat, like flat media. Huh. So how now? How about the case of um of mental imagery, right? When I ask you to, you know, imagine a flying horse or a coffee cup or or yesterday's right. breakfast or something. Yeah. So um, this was a big issue for the early introspective psychologists. Um, what is our mental imagery like? In fact, probably the very first questionnaire in all of psychology. At least I've found none earlier, and I found at least one author uh, who claimed that. Uh, historian who claimed that it was the first questionnaire was on visual imagery capacities. So Francis Galton sent around questionnaires to colleagues in science, to various uh, high-profile people, and then also systematically presented them to schoolboys, asking people to describe the character of their imagery experiences. For example, how vivid. How vividly do they imagine things? Um, and uh, in this questionnaire, he found vast differences in people's self-reports of their imagery ability. Right? People will go all the way from saying, oh, yes, my visual imagery is as clear and detailed as ordinary visual uh, eyes open sighted experience. They'll go all the way from high reports like that to saying, oh, I have no imagery at all or I have only the very faintest, tiniest little bit of imagery. Um, Galton took these reports at face value, and there had been a, over a century, so that was back in 1880, uh, in more than a century since then, there have been lots of types of questionnaires that have attempted to get at people's differences in imagery experience by asking them to self-report what their imagery experience is like. Now, the striking finding, I think, over the last 130 years has been that these self-reports of imagery experience do not reliably correlate with any difference in performance on psychological tasks that psychologists have typically thought involve imagery, right? So a typical kind of psychological task that might involve imagery would be a mental rotation task, where you're, you're, you look at two line drawings and you're asked to reach a judgment about whether one would be a rotation in three-dimensional space of the other, 
right? Or another kind of uh, task that might involve imagery would be you'd, you'd look at a piece of paper or a picture of a piece of paper with lines along uh, which you, you're supposed to imagine it being folded, and then you reach some judgment about what would that piece of paper look like after it was folded along the indicated lines, right? So those kinds of tasks psychologists have thought have involved imagery. Performance on those tasks does not appear to correlate with differences in people's reports of their imagery experience. Uh, and in fact, uh, although there have been hundreds of studies on this, and of course some of those studies come out positive, but my interpretation of the overall literature is that there's uh, a striking lack of uh, relationship between self-reports of imagery and performance on cognitive tests that seem to involve imagery. So in this, in this case, there's no, is or is there analogizing going on, or is it a different sort of explanation that you'd give for the difference? Um, I think people do analogize imagery to pictures, in fact, in fact even more strongly. Um, we'll say, you know, picture something, right, as a way of asking someone to imagine something, right? It almost doesn't sound metaphorical for us to say that, Um and actually, one of the troubles as I was looking through the ancient Greek texts on this, uh, and ancient Roman texts on imagery, was that translators will often translate imagery or image, imagine, as picture into English, right? So I'm reading these works mostly in translation and then looking at the original language for key passages. So I'd, I'd, I'd go and I'd look and I'd say, oh, there's a, a an analogy that this person is making between imagery and pictures because, you know, so-and-so is saying... And, you know, picture such and such, right? And then I look at the original, right? And it's not the word picture in there, right? It's almost invisible to us that um, that it's an analogy to call an image a picture. But in fact, I, and so I, I, but I don't have, I'm not sure exactly why people reach such different judgments about their imagery experience. Um, I think partly some of us may analogize more to pictures than do others, right? And pictures tend to have a lot of detail, right? You can obviously have sketchy pictures, but the canonical kind of picture is fairly detailed. So people who analogize more strongly may be more likely to ascribe detail to their imagery. But I also think people people are invested in wanting to see themselves as good imagers uh, or as poor imagers. So... Um, there's some recent work that suggests that uh, uh, people with certain personality or certain uh, attitudes toward an experiment will tend to describe themselves as uh, very good at imagery. Other people won't. In Galton's time, actually, there was uh, an opinion that seemed to be current that real scientists were good, serious scientists were good at abstract thinking that didn't involve imagery and kind of being swept up in detailed concrete imagery was a, a sign of uh, kind of too concrete uh, a mind, too sensory a mind, right? And so um, some scientists may have been motivated to under-describe their imagery for that reason. Um, so, yeah, so I'm not sure, I don't have a really... I haven't found a nice empirical test to try to figure out where these differences in report are coming from. That's something that I'd like to think about more. Um, but it does seem like differences in report don't seem to relate to differences in cognitive performance, which is which leads me, which doesn't compel, but certainly fits with my general uh, skepticism about the accuracy of people's reports. I mean, there are other possible interpretations, too, <laughs> like imagery is, in fact, cognitively useless or something. Um, so, um, well, again, to sort of focus on another famous attempt um, to extract, uh, you know, sort of reliable information about introspection um, is Edward Titchener's attempt, right, to base mm -hmm. introspective psychology, you know, on a you know group of of trained introspectors um, who right. reach consensus about, you know, what the contents of their experience, uh, you know, ought to be. Right. Um, could you say, and you discuss that in the book as well. Could you say something about that? Yeah. So my, 
my skepticism about the accuracy of introspective report of uh, currently ongoing conscious experience is uh, close to the skepticism that Titchener and some of the other early introspective psychologists had. Um, Wundt also. Um, so Titchener thought that ordinary people, when they're asked to do introspective tasks, when they're asked to report on their own experience, would tend to do pretty badly, um, just like I think. <laughs> but he thought he had the solution, and he thought the solution was to train people. Um, and he wrote this. Titchener's a really... Uh, the best case for this because he wrote a 1600 page laboratory manual with separate parts for the students and for the instructors, right? That detailed a course of introspective training, right? So you could go through and you could train yourself over the 1600 page laboratory manual to become an expert introspector, right? And throughout he's giving warnings about the different kinds of possible errors. And he's talking about, well, this task is easy and this task is difficult for this reason. And it's uh, you know, fascinatingly detailed examination of Titchener's perspective on uh, introspective incompetence uh, of untrained people and uh, the the heights of performance to which we can re- reach with sufficient training. Um, so, uh, so Titchener was optimistic about introspective training. And one of the things I do in the book is I look at a few of Titchener's exercises and display, I think, both, I hope, at least, display both the promise of introspective training um, and also some of its potential pitfalls. Um, the, I think there is some promise there because if I'm correct, an accurate introspection of the stream of experience is difficult, that we do things like get swept up in metaphors without really realizing it, um, then it seems like, well, you know, one potential answer to that is to become better by training ourselves learning how to avoid certain sorts of errors or learning how to be better, more accurately attuned to what's actually going through our stream of experience. And yet there are also, um, there are also some very challenging issues there. Um, and there are reasons that Tishner's ex- introspective training is no longer, no longer, uh, done. Well, Maybe the most, go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say, um, what sorts of ways might we train ourselves if not, by Titchener's methods? Um, well, the I think the two most promising things going right now, although I don't find... Well, I, I think the jury is still out on both of them. But the two most promising things going on right now are um, forms of meditation, right, that invite people to introspect on their experience, right? There's, you know, there are lots of different types of meditation, but some involve trying to attend to your experience as it flows through your mind. And um, there is at least some preliminary evidence that suggests that people who are trained in this can give reports about their experience that um, can be corroborated uh, neuroscientifically. Um, And people will claim that uh, experienced meditators in these types of meditation will, will sometimes claim that they have better knowledge of, say, the stream of their emotions than do people who don't engage in these kinds of meditation. So that's one kind of thing. But I think that's still pretty much scientifically in the pretty early stages. And the other sort of thing, uh, the other kind of training that I think has some promise is what I actually wrote my first book on uh, with uh, Russ Hurlbert, uh, which is uh, experience experience sampling methods where you give people beepers and then set them loose in their environment. And then the beep goes off and you're supposed to attend to what was going on in your experience at the last undisturbed moment, right before the beep. And then you come in and then you write a report about it. And in the way Hurlbert does it, you come in and he interviews you about it and tries to pull you away, direct you away from the kinds of things that lead to error like overgeneralizing and having a lot of background assumptions about what must be the case and thinking a lot about the causes of your experience. Hurlboat tries to train the subjects to focus really on what was that going on in that precise moment, um, stripping away, he hopes, their presuppositions. Um, And the reports that you get from subjects doing that are are interesting, and uh, the subjects will often be surprised by what they report. 
And so someone will say, oh, I never have any visual imagery at all, right? And then you beep them and they, they report lots of visual imagery. Um, so that uh, some sort of experience sampling method, I think, also has some promise as a way of trying to get at somewhat more introspective reports. But again, as I said, I'm not, I think the jury is uh, still out on how far either, how far we're going to get either through uh, meditative training or through um, uh, Hurlbert type uh, uh, beeper training. So you're, you're, you're still pessimistic, although it's not a sort of, uh, in principle, we, we can't know. It's more, we don't know. And maybe perhaps at some point in the future with the right methods we might be able to know yeah that's right that's right i think that we have vastly underestimated how difficult the task is to get it right about what our experience is i mean you think this would be low-hanging fruit for first science right you know what what could be easier to reach what's closer to us right than our own experience how could we go wrong about that i mean i think that intuition we have and that's kind of core to the to the cartesian project right descartes thought you can't doubt this right this is secure right this meaning of course my own stream of experience right now right so you'd think it would be easy to get it right about that and so i think people have been misled their epistemic their epistemic intuitions about the difficulty of introspection are out of tune with reality right it's actually very difficult to get right about that stuff. And so people leap in and very quickly, you know, they'll throw a questionnaire to subjects and then just trust the subject's reports. <laughs> subjects haven't been trained, right? And then what they get is garbage because the subjects really don't know very much about their imagery experience. So, so I think we need to back away and be careful and fully appreciate how difficult it is to get it right about your experience. Um, and once we've done that and we look for the right kinds of training methods, the right kinds of corroboration of introspective report against other sorts of evidence like cognitive behavioral evidence or neuroscientific evidence, um, if we are sufficiently careful about that, then I think we can make some progress. Although I also think it's an open question how much progress we'll make. So you're, you, you give several, um, sort of general arguments. Uh, in other words, you, you give several cases, um, and then you draw several general arguments for your pessimism, or at least your, mm-hmm. your current pessimism. Could you say something about your general arguments or, the, or your main general argument for pessimism? Um, right. So my, my main argument, I guess it comes together most in, in Chapter 7 of the book, right, is that if you look at a variety of cases, it doesn't seem like we have good knowledge of our stream of experience. If you look at people's reports about their imagery, people's intuitions, if you ask, if I ask you, you know, form an image of your house, the scene from the front, and then I start asking you questions like, is it flat? <laughs> does it have, or does it have depth? Is it fully colored from the beginning, or do you have to kind of think to assign colors to different parts and the color fills in over time. Is it all simultaneously clear at once or is it sketchy? Um, how much is it like having a visual experience? How vivid is it? I can, if, you, if I ask you a bunch of questions like that about your imagery experience or similar kinds of questions about your emotional experience, then I think most people, not everyone, will feel a certain kind of doubt. This is we, this is a case in which I think are in, <laughs> I'm tapping into a certain kind of epistemic intuition that we have, maybe that is accurate, <laughs> right? That we don't really know as well what the details are of our emotional experience as we know that as I know the details of what's on my desk by looking at it. I don't know as well the details of my uh, or even the major structural features of my imagery experience as I know. Uh, what you know? What the properties are? The basic properties are of the chair in which I'm sitting, right? So I think that looking at those cases, looking at the history of psychology, looking at the variety of things people have said about their experience, which don't seem to correlate very well with what we might plausibly think would be real differences in experience, all of that points to the the basic idea 
that introspective reports are substantially less reliable than ordinary sensory reports, perceptual reports of middle-sized objects in our environment. Um, well, that that seems to reverse the usual sort of, you know, epistemological order, right? I mean, stemming back to Descartes or before, um, that, you know, we can't know, we can't have knowledge of the external world, or we can't without first basing it on knowledge of our own minds. Um, right. Are, so are you endorsing, sort of reversing that, you know, order of explanation? I am. Right. So I think that, so call, call that view introspective foundationalism, right? On introspective foundationalism, you have introspective knowledge of your own experience, especially your sensory experience. And on the basis of that introspective knowledge of your own experience, you reach conclusions about the outside world. I think that that can't be right because our knowledge of our own sensory experience is so poor. We have much better knowledge, I think, of the outside world. So, in fact, I think our knowledge of our uh, perceptual experience is often grounded in, to a large extent, although I don't think completely, but to a large extent grounded in our knowledge of the outside world. Right. So if I look at a white wall and I judge, oh, I'm having a visual experience of whiteness, I think it's to a large extent because I know of the outside thing that it's a white thing that I'm inclined to judge that I'm having, having the visual experience of whiteness, right? If I look at a box of tissue paper, right, I know a lot about that box. I know its shape. I know its colors. I know how it's oriented in space. I know its texture. All that stuff that I know through vision then informs my judgments about what experience I'm having when I'm looking at that box rather than the other way around. So how then how do I know what the wall is like or what the box is like? So how does perception work? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me say this. I don't think it works as follows. Something comes in the eye. I have a certain experience. I know that I have that experience, and therefore I reach a conclusion about what the outside world is. It's something more like something comes through the eye, and... I have knowledge about the outside world on the basis of that. Somehow, an experience is created that exactly where the experience is in the causal path is, I think, I think there are actually a couple options. But it's not that I have an experience and the knowledge of the experience, and, and those are precursors of my perceptual knowledge. Rather, the perceptual knowledge somehow flows more directly from the input into the eye than uh, than that. So it sounds something like maybe um, an interactive sort of process. Would that be correct? Um, well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to push you into something you don't want to, you don't agree with, but... I need a chalkboard, because <laughs> I think, I mean, you can draw various, There, I think there are various options, Um that are available um, about how, say, the causal arrows would work. In general, though, I am somewhat inclined generally to see the mind as uh, having lots of uh, feedback and, and looping mechanisms. So, yes, so the, so, so yes, to the extent that you're talking about, you know, um, feedback mechanisms between the experience and our knowledge of the experience and our judgments about the outside world and how those all being entangled with each other. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sympathetic to that. But what I definitely don't want to do is ground our knowledge of the outside world in a prior knowledge of our experience of that world. Okay. Um, could you maybe say a word about, um, how you address the metaphysics of, uh, you know, theories of the metaphysics of consciousness, theories of consciousness and the search for neural correlates of consciousness um, in uh, Chapter 6. Right. So I am skeptical <laughs> of um, all general theories of consciousness. I think that we, we 
can have kind of localized theories of, uh, you know, con- I'm not sure I call them theories of consciousness, but we can have localized knowledge about the relationship between conscious states and neural states. But these kind of ge- general grand sweeping theories, uh, I think, are, well, probably one of them is right or some 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 version of uh, something like what we have might be right. But um, I don't think we have solid epistemic ground for accepting any of them. Um, and that's because I think that just think about the neural correlates type case first, right? In order to, in order to uh, discover what the neural correlates of consciousness are, you have to have at least a vague idea, at least a general idea, a first approximation of what mental states are the conscious ones, right? If it turns out that consciousness is super abundant, right? So that all kinds of early visual processing is conscious, even without attention. If uh, ants are conscious and frogs and termites or whatever, right? If consciousness is super abundant, then you're going to have one kind of view of the neural correlates of consciousness and one kind of view of the metaphysics of consciousness, uh, if consciousness is super sparse, right, so that really you only get consciousness, say, in uh, maybe even just only in human beings, right, or only in, you know, relatively cognitively sophisticated animals, right? And furthermore, if it's sparse in the sense that uh, you only have conscious experience of what you're attending to and you don't have conscious experience outside of attention, then you're going to have a very different kind of view of what the neural neural correlates of consciousness must be, uh, what the metaphysic what, what the metaphysical basis of consciousness might be, say the functional basis. So um, and I think that in our current epistemic state, we cannot tell which whether consciousness is radically abundant or radically sparse or somewhere in between. We're not gonna Yeah, and, and until we figure that out, at least to a first approximation we there are going to be radically different views of the metaphysics of consciousness and neural correlates of consciousness that are all kind of still on the table. Um, so there were well, there were two sorts of sparse, abundant distinctions, right? That you're just mentioning, right? One is you know sort of how many different kinds of creatures might have it, right? Right. Many or few. Right. Um, and then there was the question that you sort of mentioned about um, whether just what is just what we are attending to is part of our conscious experience versus right. the stuff we're attending to and the stuff that's peripheral or right. know, is also being part. So could you, you know, focusing on that second distinction, um, uh, could you say something about, again, about how that... Um, how, are, yeah, yeah. how we're unable to, you know, sort of find neural correlates of consciousness such that we could, you know, distinguish between those two theories. Right. So, yeah, I, so let me, yeah, let me bring out the, into the, the second issue uh, a bit more carefully. That's a very, that's a good way of distinguishing and pulling those two things apart, right? The, the sparseness or abundance, as it were, kind of across the phylogenetic spectrum, right? And the sparseness or abundance within human beings, um, so what I've found is that people tend to, uh, either have a sparse view or an abundant view about their own stream of experience and other people's stream of experience and think that whoever has the other view is just, you know, clearly wrong or confused about words, <laughs> but it splits in my experience interviewing people, it splits about 50, 50. And let me just tell you some cases that people go differently with on the sparse versus abundant thing. One is the refrigerator hum in the background, right? So you're sitting in the kitchen, the refrigerator has been going, you know, who knows how long, 20 minutes, and uh, you're not paying any attention to the hum of the fridge. You're, say, reading the newspaper, right? Um, Do you have a peripheral conscious experience, auditory experience of that hum? Right? Is that part of your stream of experience? Is it part of what it's like to be you? Is it an aspect of your phenomenology? That somewhere in the periphery, maybe vaguely, is this mm, of the fridge. Or do you not experience that at all? Is it not 
in any way part of your experience. And really all you're experiencing is, you know, kind of the stuff you're attending to. Maybe your current thoughts, the contents of the newspaper you're reading, right? Likewise, you know, do you have constant tactile experience of your feet in your shoes, right? Kind of in a peripheral way. Or do you really only experience your feet in your shoes when you think about it? Right? And people have very different intuitions about this kind of case. Another kind of case people have different intuitions about is the absent-minded driver case. Right? So you're driving to work. You've done it a thousand times along the same route. Right? This time you're driving. You're, you're not paying much attention. You're just completely absorbed in remembering some unpleasant interaction you had with your department head, say. Right? And then you get to work and you're like, ah, I'm at work already. Right? You kind of almost like wake up. Right? Now, did you have visual experience of the road as you were driving? Clearly, you avoided obstacles, you stopped at the red light, you know, had some emergency happened, you would have snapped out of it and responded, right? You were responsive to stuff going on in the road, right? But did you actually, was it part of your stream of experience, that road, visual experience of the road? You know, was, did you have a constant stream of visual experience of the road, or did you have almost no experience of it, or only just brief flashes of it, right? And people have very different intuitions about that. So that's the kind of sparse versus abundant uh, debate um, that you see in the philosophical literature and in the psychological literature, and that I think is very difficult to resolve. Um, if you want to, we can get into my attempts to resolve it and my failure to resolve it. But the kind of relevant to the issue about neural correlates is this, right? Assume that both a very sparse view and a very thin view are on the table. Um, on one view, you're going to have lots of things that, uh, on the on the abundant view. You're not going to have there the kinds of neural states that are going to qualify as conscious are going to be much broader and much easier to attain than if consciousness is sparse, right? Why is that? So, well, let's say that you have say visual processing in uh, V1, but it doesn't go very much. Uh, you know, doesn't get processed much forward. Uh, from there back into the uh, you know the more cognitive uh, central areas, right? And you're not attending, right? Is that you know on, a, on an abundant view that might be enough for consciousness, right? On a sparse view, it might not be enough. That's really just very vague, <laughs> vague and abstract way of putting it, right? But on an abundant view, there are going to be many more brain states and cognitive states that are conscious than on a sparse view, right? So if you're trying to tag down what are the neural correlates of consciousness, I think, in fact, every view that's been proposed has as a starting assumption either a vague, either a sparse or an abundant or some sort of moderate uh, view of uh, uh, how basically how, cheap, how cheaply consciousness can be achieved. And so they all end up being circular in a way. Yes. Right now, I think the all of these theories beg the question. Right. I don't. There's. I. I have not seen anything even close to evidence. If you're committed, if you're someone who's committed, as I think is reasonable, you know, on the table. <laughs> if you're someone who's attracted to an abundant view. Right? then I have not seen any evidence or anything even close to evidence for those who advocate sparse views of consciousness that should move you from your abundant view. You could say, oh, well, that's not a view. That's, no, those aren't the neural correlates of consciousness. Those are the neural correlates, say, of consciousness while you're attending, or they're the neural correlates of attention, or the neural correlates of you know, reportability under certain conditions. Right? But consciousness, if you're abundant, it's a lot easier to attain than that. Right? And vice versa. Right for people who have abundant views of the metaphysics or of the neural correlates of consciousness. Right, I I, I don't think there's anything they've said that should convince some, that should win someone over who is attracted to a sparse view. So I think we're we're running out of time. So let me just close with a final question on this matter. Um, do you think that this is the search for neural correlates of consciousness um, is one of the uh, one of the areas where, down the road, you know, in the long term, uh, we might actually be able to distinguish between the two types. 
right? And, you know, along with your sort yeah. of not in principle skepticism, but sort of current state of knowledge skepticism. Right. So, yes, my skepticism is about the short to the medium term, maybe the next the next two or three decades, maybe. <laughs> um, farther down the road is so hard to see. I mean, I'm nervous about making... Uh, I don't see how it can be resolved. But I'm also very aware of the fact that scientists are pretty clever and naysayers about science have generally been proven wrong (laughs) or often been proven wrong over the long term. Right. So I, it's not an in principle skepticism, right? I don't have any reason uh, to say there's no way this could be figured out. Um, But I think for the short to medium term, things are looking, I don't see how, People, how we can cross the divide between sparseness and abundance, either phylogenetically or how far does it, uh, consciousness spread beyond attention? I don't see how we can cross that divide. I don't see the be- even the beginnings of an, uh, a satisfactory attempt to do that. So, so yeah. So I don't know how how it could be resolved, but I'm not committed to the impossibility of resolving it. I, Maybe, maybe there will. Maybe we'll find a way. Uh, okay. Well, on on that hopeful note, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's about as hopeful as I get. <laughs> well, thank you, Eric, for speaking with us today. Thank you. Okay. We've been listening to Professor Eric Schwitzgabel of the University of California at Riverside talking about his new book, Perplexities of Consciousness, from MIT Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed our podcast, and thank you for listening.